You're listening to part one of the interview with Dr. Kevin Tempe about how philosophers can contribute to the discussion and understanding of disability. You are not hearing things? Dr. Pierce, our parable man, does sound like a droid. But he's okay. He's a good droid. Welcome to the Parable Man podcast. My name is Jeremy Pierce. I am the Parable Man, and I am here today with Kevin Tempe who is a professor of philosophy at Calvin University, formerly Calvin College. Many people know it by that name. And um, recently, I think, was just added a new title, the William uh, F. William H. Jellema Chair in Christian Philosophy. And um, Kevin is a, uh, a specialist in several different things. A lot, written a lot about free will and philosophy of religion and uh, has started working more on disability in recent years and has a, a disability advocacy service, uh, a nonprofit mm-hmm. that he has started uh, in, uh, in his own community, and, uh, but has also written a number of scholarly contributions on the topic of disability, and that's what we're going to focus on today. And um, for... For those who are not aware, uh, I have two sons with autism and a wife who is also diagnosed with autism, a relatively recent diagnosis in the last maybe two years, I think. And Kevin has a son who has a a developmental disability as well. So we experience this in our families. And uh, in addition to our academic (laughs) interest in it and uh, so we have we have a good amount in common there. Uh, so I guess I wanted to start out by uh, asking you, uh, what is it that you think uh, philosophy? What are, what are what are some of the main issues I guess that philosophy has to contribute to discussions about disability? Uh, I think that the longest uh, running contribution that a lot of philosophers have done is in the bioethics literature. And so there's been a lot of work for a number of decades about thinking about philosophy within uh, bioethics um, issues, uh, related issues about resource allocation and some of the justice literature. Um, But over the last, I'd say, 10 years or so, philosophers have started to sort of broaden out what they're doing. And I think in, in helpful ways, there's Um, uh, folks working on what the nature of disability is, whether or not we can give an account of uh, what, uh, say, physical disabilities are, what all and only physical disabilities share in common. This is, I think, some of Elizabeth Barnes's influential work in uh, her book, The Minority Body. You've got folks doing, I think, good and important work on how disability relates to epistemic uh, injustice issues and issues about testimony and uh, testimonial uptake. Um, you've got folks looking at, I think, how uh, disability and issues in philosophy of religion um, connect that I think are important. Um, the history there is, I think, controversial and and, and fairly mixed in terms of how religious and uh, 
uh, institutions and, and different religions over their histories have thought of, uh, thought about and interacted with disability. And so um, I think that a lot of what philosophers are sometimes best at is getting folks to think carefully and to question some of the underlying assumptions that might be in place for a long time that haven't uh, been brought to the surface and, and been um, uh, engaged directly. And I think that a lot of philosophers are doing that kind of work now with respect to disability across a range of issues. Would you say that this is a fair characterization? People in other fields have been doing philosophy of disability, but not with the careful philosophical training that an analytic philosopher would have. And so now that philosophers are starting to do this more, it's helpful in shedding more light on it. Is that yeah, I mean, there's always questions about exactly where the boundaries of philosophy extend. Um, but you certainly have folks like Michael, uh, Michael Berube that I think has been doing, uh, at least under one description, philosophy of disability for quite a long time, even though he's in a, been posted in an English literature department for a long time. And so a lot of disability studies stuff has been making philosophical assumptions. And so I think now that uh, philosophers are weighing uh, you you have some unique contributions in terms of how we uh, approach and think about different subjects but in some ways philosophers are playing catch up to a lot of uh, folks in other disciplines that have been doing uh, more and better work on philo uh, on disability for a while that's what it feels like to me with race which is what my specialization mm -hmm. uh, is um, so, I, I mean, I, I, uh, that's what I've got published work in. Mean, I have popular level <laughs> treatment of disability and the game, ultimate game of thrones and philosophy book, but that's the only thing I've published about disability that's even remotely uh, academic and that's not really that academic. But, but uh, in the race stuff, I mean, I don't think people started doing philosophy of race until the 90s. But all the stuff that we were finding in sociology before that they were making philosophical claims they were giving philosophical arguments they, they had assumptions they were relying on i don't think it was as careful as it would have been if they had been trained by philosophers and that's what philosophy of race has been able to do now to to be more more uh rigorous about that and i i my my I, i'm assuming something similar is happening with disability as as philosophers who are trained as philosophers are doing it. I think everyone does philosophy. I, I don't have this view that these professional philosophers are the only philosophers. We're all philosophers. And lots of disciplines do philosophy without realizing it. Sometimes it's not very well done. And sometimes it, it is pretty well done. Yeah, I think but that's I, true. I see a number of like, the careful distinctions being made. Applying the distinctions that philosophers have come up with <clears throat> that a sociologist might not be sensitive to. Or, or a um, uh, an anthropologist, or something like that, and, and or a biologist, right? These, these issues <laughs> you're going to find being written. These issues can be written about by people in different fields. In some ways, disability studies is uh, it is probably equally interdisciplinary as race studies. Yeah, I think that's so. True. Uh, but but a lot of a lot of these people who've been writing about it for years are doing philosophy and just not calling it that. Yeah. So, uh, do, do you want to talk a little bit about the 
the history of how philosophers have talked about disability when they did do so. Yeah, uh, in, in, I mean, before before the recent renewed interest in it, I guess. Yeah, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of folks in bioethics have been thinking about disability for a long time, and some of those discussions are are uh, uh, important and good. Um, they haven't always uh, involved questioning certain kinds of value assumptions that I think are underlying a lot of the bioethics literature about the value of of good human lives. Uh, you've got some influential folks like uh, Peter Singer and Jeff McMahon, who are probably two of the uh, most well-known philosophers to have written on disability. And both of them have views uh, that are, I think, broad, fairly broadly known as, as philosophers and also pretty negative about uh, the value of at least some disabled lives. Right? I don't think that they that what they've written on disability applies equally to all disabilities. Um, it might be that somebody with extreme uh, cognitive impairment falls under the scope of some of Singer's arguments in a way that somebody who's uh, uh, an amputee, for instance, doesn't. But Singer is well known uh, for thinking that uh, what matters morally is a certain kind of preference satisfaction. He's a, a, a preference satisfaction utilitarian. And so uh, what matters is uh, morally and how we construct our, our uh, moral communities is letting the broadest number of folks be able to satisfy the broadest number of preferences that they have. And so he thinks uh, that uh, uh, animals have preferences. So he's well known for his work on animal liberation um, but he thinks that the uh, that there are at least some cognitively disabled folks who are less likely to have valuable preferences than are animals. And so in some of his work, he talks about how various non-human animals have a higher degree of, of moral value than do some disabled folks. And so that's the kind of um, uh, work on disability that I think is uh, some folks might be familiar with from philosophy that uh, suggest some of the, the problematic underlying assumptions about uh, the experience of, of disabled lives and the value of disabled lives. And that goes way back. In one of your works, you quote Aristotle as saying that um, people with, I think he's talking about cognitive disabilities or maybe he's not even restricting himself to that. But, uh, I think he is. I mean, I don't think that he's thinking about, you know, uh, somebody coming back from uh, a war in Alexander's army who has a uh, has an amputated limb, amput amputated or a, a, an arm that's not functional. Right. So he's he's talking about cognitive disability, and he defends the Greek practice of exposing infants uh, who have. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know how you would demonstrate it at infancy with the technology they had, but maybe, maybe, maybe there was some indication of that. I guess I don't know. So, I mean, I, I, there are times when you have some indication. With, I mean, we had kittens. We, when I was a kid, we had cats that had, kid, had kid, litters of kittens. We had one that just was not very responsive. It, it, it was able to feed from its mother, but it didn't do very much else. And when we took it to the vet, they said, yeah, it's probably got very little brain activity. So maybe there would be ways to know that with an infant. I don't know. 
uh, with Aristotle's level of technology. Yeah, I mean, I suspect that what they used a certain uh, biological or morphological features as proxies for that, right? So yeah, individuals with, with Down syndrome uh, typically have not only uh, a, a, actually a really widely varying degree of cognitive impairment, uh, some right. not at all, uh, but certain kind of morphological features. And so my guess is that they were just using physical features as a placeholder for or, or an indicator of the kind of uh, intellectual or cognitive disability that their practices were based on. Right. And there is this passage in Aristotle that's very famous in other ways where he talks about natural slaves that I think is widely misinterpreted. I look at that passage and I think, who is it he's talking about? He's definitely not doing anything racial. Yeah. There's nothing there about certain racial groups being, they didn't even have the concept of race that we have. They, they, the words for race that he would have used would have been very small groups like ethnicities. But it's not about that at all. What is he talking about? Who is it that's a natural slave? It's gotta be people with cognitive disabilities. I think it's the only way to take that passage in a way that makes any sense. Scott Williams at University of North Carolina at Asheville has done some work on not only Aristotle on this, but the medieval reception of Aristotle, uh, looking at natural slaves that, that argues for the same sort of thing. Yeah. So his, his conclusion is, because you have a cognitive disability, you should be enslaved. That's right. That's the right. That's the proper response that human beings should have to a fellow human being. With a cognitive disability, you shouldn't enslave them, and and it's not because um, of um, uh, I mean it's a very similar argument to what you get with later slavery apologists when they do apply it racially. It, it's that there, there's there's no other level of functionality that they can engage in that because they need supervision, they need oversight, they need to be told what to do. It's that kind of argument, right? Yeah. And it's it's often given in a kind of paternal. I mean, Aristotle is is uh, not shy of his paternalism in general. Uh, he's not shy of his paternalism with respect to women, for instance, uh, or children. And it's the same kind of paternalistic uh, motivated argument for uh, in Aristotle for natural slavery. It's also important to keep in mind that slavery for Aristotle would have been a, a fairly different practice than the kind of chattel slavery that right, yeah. <laughs> in the United States in the early part of its history. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, uh, but the the kind of I mean that's not to say that it's not problematic. It's just it might be differently problematic than the kind of uh, right. slave most of us uh, have in mind when when we think of the term. Uh, but you're exactly right that the the one of the central arguments that has been given throughout. Uh, at least Western history. Uh, I'm not as familiar with uh, the history of disability in, in, in other parts of the world. Uh, has often been been uh, cashed out in terms of this kind of paternalistic uh, argument, right? We're doing it uh, for the sake of these individuals. Uh, this is the best thing that is offered for them. And it's the, the same kind of arguments that then were used um, in the 20th century in the United States uh, to uh, when when we were at the height of our uh, institutionalization uh, policies with respect to disability, right? So even um, some of the worst kinds of care facilities that we had in, in, in the U.S. I'm thinking of like Willowbrook on Staten Island, um, right? Was was justified on the basis of this is what is best for these individuals, and and these are settings where they would be locked in a room all day, pretty much, and yep. have nothing to do. 
Yep. And no one engaging with them most of the day. Yeah. It was it was like a prison. Yeah, I mean it was yeah. it was functionally like that. Uh, uh, Geraldo Rivera in the I think it was the early seventies uh, got his sort of big national break as an investigative reporter for for doing an expose on Willowbrook. And they knew that he was coming. They knew that he was bringing a, a TV crew. Um, and and they, uh, the, uh, the people that ran the facility, um, like dressed the residents. Um, but there'd be 30 residents sitting in a room with just chairs with, with drains in the middle where they just get hosed off. There was no attempt to educate. There was no attempt to uh, uh, give them outdoor exercise. There were... Um, uh, patient to, uh, to resident ratios that were just horrific. Uh, found out later that they were forcibly injecting the, the residents with hepatitis to see how transmission functioned. Um, I, I got the op- I had the opportunity a few years ago to talk with a local individual here in Grand Rapids that had actually spent part of his youth in Willowbrook. Um, and it was really painful for him to, to talk about. And we met in person. Um, it, it wasn't a subject that we had discussed, but he had a book of uh, where he had, among other things, talked about it a little bit. And he talks about how his mom was giving him advice from the, from the doctors uh, that this would be what was best. And so his mom was uh, misinformed and, and trusting the kinds of uh, professionals that she thought where she'd get uh, good advice from. And, and the kind of paternalistic argument was exactly why he was placed in, in, in Willowbrook, uh, where he was the subject of, of, of abuse for years until the facility was shut down after uh, Geraldo's um, report. So, um, I mean, I guess there's some level of that argument being correct for some people in that with some people there there it makes sense to limit autonomy to some degree <laughs> if if you if you deny that entirely then you're going to you're going to have severe problems i think it's not in the best interest of one of my sons for example for us to simply let him do whatever he wants right he will be wandering around the neighborhood. He'll be walking into stores and walking out with stuff <laughs> that he hasn't paid for. Uh, he showed up at the park one day with no pants on when he was 12. <laughs> he had a long shirt on, but still he had no pants and and uh, things like that. I mean, it's not like it's not like we just let him do that. He he actually on that particular day he waited until I was changing a diaper with one of his younger siblings <laughs> and then he took off. Um, but but and we still worry about that. Mm-hmm. There, there's there's um, he's been known to do damage to people's property. He's been known to walk into houses that are unlocked, and in a, a college neighborhood where a college age young man he's 18 now too, so that raises further issues. Is he going to be treated as an adult by the police? Right. Uh, we have to restrict him yep. for his own good. There is something to that. Sure. But I'm not in principle been... opposed to um, paternalism. I'm, I mean, I engage paternalistically with all of my children. Right. Uh, and not just our disabled <laughs> child. Right? But, right. but what gets problematic is when the mere presence of a disability 
regardless of the details of how that disability affects the person in, in question is used um, in, uh, for, to, to justify problematic kinds of paternalistic policies that we wouldn't, um, th that involve details of certain kinds of treatment that we probably wouldn't go for in, in other kinds of uh, contexts. Um, I mean, even U.S. prisons in the 70s were no bastions of, of you know, the respect for human dignity and value. Um, but I suspect yeah. that places like Willowbrook were, were even we're more dehuman dehumanizing than, than yeah. prisons. So um, I guess there's, there's, there's a similar... Um, I mean, there's a distinction I think that you need to make here, which is uh, between simply restricting people for some very broad reason that doesn't apply to the details of their situation. But there's also the fact that you, when you, I mean, contra singer, <laughs> when you think here's someone who has interests, here's someone who, who's, who's, a, a, a subject of moral consideration, someone that we should count morally, we have to take their interests into account. Mm -hmm. And if I'm restricting anyone's freedom, it should be at least take into account their interests. Now, there might be reasons to restrict someone's freedom when it's not because of their interests. For example, protecting people from someone who's going to engage in dangerous activities. Right. It is for the sake of other people, but it's also for the sake of, of, of their good too, in mm -hmm. those cases. I mean, I guess it, this is a controversial philosophical view, but I think um, reinforcing someone's bad behavior <laughs> is, um, is bad for them too. It's intrinsically bad for them. That's, that's my view anyway. So I think, I think you can do both at once. Yeah, uh, where that often plays out problematically with respect to disability, though, is that there's a uh, problematic understanding about what is, in fact, in the interests of disabled folks, uh, what kinds of their own interests and autonomy they're capable of valuing. Uh, right. And, and, and so it's not, in principle, the paternalism that's uh, the problem always. It's how that actually plays out given uh, the individuals, given the societal factors, various kinds of stuff, right? So, so Singer has been pushing this uh, uh, line of, of thinking about uh, disabled lives for a long time. Eva Kate, another philosopher, has for a long time been saying, uh, Kate is the, the mother of a, a cognitively uh, impaired daughter. And Kate has done a lot of work on care ethics talking about it. And, and Kate has invited Singer, for instance, to go to her daughter's facility to meet her daughter and other people with the kinds of cognitive impairments that, that Singer writes about and actually become informed about what their lives are like, how they do have interests, um, how they do have various kinds of preferences. Right? Kate talks about how her daughter has very strong preferences, even among classical music uh, uh, composers. Uh, if I remember right, she's mm. a uh, much bigger uh, Mozart fan than she is a Bach fan, or, or maybe it's vice versa. And and Kate has been inviting Singer to to come learn about the actual experience of the sorts of lives that he's writing about, and and he's been resistant. So in a 
what I think is a wonderful piece uh, entitled The Personal is Philosophical is Political. Uh, Kate talks about, uh, criticizes Singer for his, um, for not exercising epistemic humility uh, in terms of writing about things that he doesn't understand and criticizes him for also lacking epistemic responsibility, being willing to listen to uh, and, and moderate his views in light of the kinds of input. And, and so, I mean, this, you know, this, the, the ways in which disabled lives aren't properly understood plays out not only in the philosophical literature like that, but also I think plays out in the day-to-day -day lives of lots of folks. Um, and so for instance, when our son was uh, young and, and diagnosed with various kinds of disabilities, um, the folks who gave us sort of guidance, the way that our society is structured were uh, the medical community and the educational community. And I think in, in, in many ways, these communities are often more ableist, more problematically oriented towards disability than lots of other parts of, of our society. And what didn't happen, uh, wasn't encouraged by the structures is, okay, your son has an autism diagnosis. Let us put you in touch with uh, autistic adults so that you can have an understanding of what the lived experience of autism actually is from somebody with firsthand awareness of it and not just somebody who has been trained in certain careers that often, as I said, make problematic assumptions about what those lives are like. Yeah. Yeah, I think when we, when our first son was diagnosed, the, the, the doctor actually didn't have anything to say. Says, well, you need to deal with the educational specialists. So we did. And the first educational specialist we saw was someone who came to our house and evaluated him. And I was seeing her report, she's checking off, was not able to do this, was not able to do this, was not able to do this. I'm thinking he is able to do that. He just didn't do it for you. Yeah. Why are you word wording it that way? <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, it's just that it was it was um sh shocking to me that they that they they would word it that way. I, mean, I understood what she was trying to say. She was trying to say that given the stimulus she provided to him, he didn't do it. But but it was it was it sounded to me like there was assumptions there about ability, and there's there's always that kind of presumption. I think someone like Singer is drawing inferences from what is actually demonstrated to what is cap what is possible, and some of that is, I think, hugely uh, unaware of what it might be like for someone who's who's who doesn't communicate or doesn't communicate very well or clearly mm -hmm. there are often presumptions of lower intelligence when there there aren't actual I mean, well when the differences in intelligence are very um particular <laughs> there's particular intellectual skills that are lower uh, in, in 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 ability when others that aren't or when there's plenty of uh preferences and thoughts and 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 so on without any indication of what that is to everyone else because of inability or difficulty communicating and and a lot of that is because no one really spent the time to try to help that person to communicate so yeah. I, I don't know how Kate's daughter is in terms of communication but um even with with the people that I have known who have either nonverbal or a lot less verbal, there are ways to get them to express their preferences. And, and, uh, 
that's a huge thing for them. They 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 suddenly now are able to to let you know what they want. So we moved with our first son, who was fairly good at communicating things when pushed. He needs prodding. He he doesn't just share things, yeah. but he's fairly good. I mean, he just completed an associate's degree. He's 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 able to handle college level work. But when he was three, he wasn't asking for anything at all ever. He would watch Veggie Tales videos. And then he would sing all the songs from them, having heard them once. That was, and then when you get a book in front of him, a board book or something, he'd read it to you. Mm-hmm. He was capable of getting language out when it was already put together. Yeah. He was repeating it. He was sometimes repeating it um, in a in a very perseverative way. He's he's just repeating it over and over again, and he would he would act out. Finding Nemo whenever he went swimming. The whole movie. <laughs> he goes through the entire movie. <laughs> uh, but but when he was three years old, he wasn't asking for anything at all. He'd go get it if he could, yep. or he'd sort of stand there in front of the fridge and not say anything. And um, I know there are criticisms of ABA, but ABA actually helped him to be able to ask for things. It was a way to to open up his communication, and uh, it took an intensive weekend. It took like sixteen hours. Of of, of it over one weekend and then suddenly he's asking for things and uh i mean I, I tend to think when aba goes wrong is when you're trying to impose your expectations on yeah. someone not give them their voice but aba can help someone find their voice too and it did in his case so it's it's uh one of that's one of the big big issues really in how we respond to someone with either cognitive disabilities or communication disabilities don't make assumptions about confidence. Uh, try to try to see what they are capable of doing. Try to find ways to to ex- let them express themselves. And yeah, I, that's that's Singer is making all sorts of assumptions there that are there's actually good evidence against. Not just yeah. that he doesn't have evidence for them. There's yeah. good evidence against them. Yeah, and and that's uh, Kate's part about the in, uh, uh, intellectual responsibility. If he was willing to to change his views in light of the kind of evidence that people have tried now for, uh, um, well, in her case, decades to to give him, I actually yeah. think that the the presumption of incompetence that you were suggesting a minute ago actually goes beyond just intellectual and communicative disability. I think that there's evidence to suggest that we make those kinds of right culturally we make the the presumption of incompetence in various ways um, uh, with. Uh, various kinds of physical disabilities too. So somebody who has a profound stutter will often be responded to as if they were, right, in sort of infantilizing ways, uh, in childish ways. Um, People with stutters will often be talked to more loudly and more slowly suggesting that they have uh, difficulty in hearing and comprehending, which again, uh, in, in lots of cases, isn't the case. Uh, with respect to my own father-in-law, he was—he's uh, an amputee from uh, the uh, Korean conflict, and uh, he's had a prosthetic leg since 1950 or 51 or something like that. Um, and and he's still able to walk, but you know, it, uh, walking long distances causes him pain. And so, if we're going to be out uh, for too far, he uh, uses his his wheelchair. And it's interesting to go into restaurants. And uh, he, he lives with us now. So we, you know, pre-pandemic, we, we did this on a, on a fairly regular basis. Uh, if he was walking and we walk in, you know, we had somebody, re- you know, our family ranged from small children to, 
somebody in their uh, late 80s, now early 90s. If he was walking, the, the receptionist or the hostess um, host at the restaurant would often sort of presume he was in charge of the department and right. or, uh, in charge of our party and, and ask us things. And the bill right. would come to him. Um, but if he has his wheelchair, right, the, the question would go to my spouse or I, whichever uh, was pushing the wheelchair, right. the bill would come in different sorts of ways. And so I think this yeah. reflects that it's not only... Um, uh, cognitive and communicative disabilities that we make these kinds of presumptions. I think it's in, in lots of contexts, e even various kinds of physical disabilities that we, that we make them as well. It, it always strikes me as odd. It shouldn't, but it strikes me as odd when I'm out with my son. I just take him to the store. We get some stuff. We go through the line and someone talks to us both. They're like, you, are you, um, did you guys have any trouble finding anything? <laughs> or, Right. See you guys later. Right. Just I just don't expect people to talk to him hmm. if they at least if they know if they know what he's like. And we're in a certain grocery store every day, pretty much. That's I mean that's his, his ritual. He gets home from school. He wants to go to the store and get a snack. And and they know him. They know what he's like. And um, there's a certain uh, worker there, a young young. I think she's a teenager, and she's always she always talks to both of us. So I, I I find that refreshing, but it's it's yeah. almost shocking when it happens. Yeah, because so, the cultural default is so strong and so uh, common that that when you see folks not making those assumptions, it it often catches you off guard. Yeah, yeah. So um, one of the things that I think philosophy has to offer to this discussion is. You can make a distinction between uh, being a moral subject in the sense of you count morals and being a moral uh, agent in the sense that you can rationally think through your choices and evaluate them morally. And you could be fully a moral subject without necessarily being as far along in the other, in the other kind of moral uh, category. Mm -hmm. And there are a number of moral theories that have been very popular that tie the two together. So I, I for example, social contract theories, you're not a moral, uh, you're not, you're not part of a social contract unless you can consent to it. And that takes rational agreement or um, at least Immanuel Kant's version of, of deontology. You're, you're not a you're not a member of the moral community unless you can rationally engage in a certain level of moral thought to go through argumentation. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there's implications of that that people have been critical of without thinking about disability. For example, on that view, a newborn does not have any moral status at all. Yep. And uh, I remember there was a very famous paper on abortion by uh, uh, what's her name. Uh, uh, Marianne Warren, hmm. where someone presented that objection to her, said, "Well, if your if your view about the fetus is uh, is correct, then doesn't apply to newborns." And she basically said yes. <laughs> she basically said yes, and and then she gave Kant's response about animals to because Kant doesn't think animals have any moral status, um, and said, "Well, the reason we shouldn't just we should the reason it's not okay to kill a newborn is because it does things to us." Yeah. 
and and rather than for their own sake. Yeah. And but that just strikes me as the clearest counterexample of that kind of view. Like, hardly anyone thinks it's okay to just kill a newborn, and it's not just because of what it does to us. It does do stuff to us, sure. Right. But that's not the only reason why it's wrong to kill a newborn. And and but I think the same sorts of arguments apply to disability. And I think when you're going to have a view about this, this is not an issue that I think most ethics classes really focus on as here's the issue that we're going to cover. We're going to cover um, what's, what the good life looks like. We're going to cover what right and wrong are all about and talk about virtue. And we might do some meta ethics and talk about what, what it means to be moral and so on. But the, the question of who has moral status is not usually highlighted as one of the themes of the course. Yeah. But it's there in all of these views, and there's all sorts of assumptions being made that aren't defended, really, I don't think. And, and how, how you think about animals and their moral status, how you think about newborns or fetuses or um, different stages of development, and how you think about people with disabilities should um, all come out of a theory that fits together nicely. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, I mean, Warren's view does. Warren's view does fit together. I don't think she contradicts herself. But she says some things that most people would be very uncomfortable. Yeah. And, I mean, this and, is also true of Singer, right? I mean, Singer uh, is yeah. certainly consistent. It, it's just that I think reflecting on some of these cases shows us what's wrong with the underlying moral principles. It's not that he right, misapplies those principles in certain cases. I just think that uh, his, his view on disability shows us that he's got uh, the wrong understanding of what uh, moral value consists in. Yeah. So I wanted to I wanted to do a little bit of a couple particular questions that I know you've made some comments on about in your work. Um, so one thing I wanted to, to touch on is the the social model versus the medical model, and then the the mere difference versus bad difference approach. So can you say something about that? Yeah, uh, let me say a little bit about uh, each of these. Um, and I think that, and, and then say something about uh, sort of how the two are often taken to, to uh, overlap, right? W one section or one of those distinctions overlapping with the other. So the medical model is a way of thinking of disability primarily in terms of uh, individual bodies. Uh, and it is often, uh, seeing that it is uh, features of bodies that disable folks, um, they uh, whereas the social model thinks that the social interactions and the ways that communities might exclude folks on the basis of their bodies or other facts that that um, exclude them. And so the medical model will look at something like uh, being a paraplegic and just say what the disability is is the inability for the legs to to, to walk it's, you know the what disables the person is that they can't ambulate in the way that we expect human bodies to whereas the social model will say uh, well what actually disables the person uh, is that our uh, uh, either our buildings or our geographies or our uh, communities aren't constructed for these sorts of folks, right? And so this is what part of the, the disability rights movement in the uh, US in the 70s, 80s, and 90s in the lead up to the ADA was trying to do, right? What, what pri the, the primary difficulty that disabled folks face in our society isn't facts about their bodies, it's the way that we treat them on the 
perception of facts about their bodies. And so, so the social model uh, holds that uh, disability is a function of how we think about the value of and access to certain kinds of goods on the basis of uh, their bodies. And so uh, sort of a, a fundamental different way of uh, thinking about what the nature of disability is. Uh, Elizabeth Barnes introduces the terminology uh, between uh, bad difference views of disability and mere difference views of disability. And, and Barnes's work is only oriented at physical disabilities. So she doesn't want, right, she, she recognizes that how we think about other kinds of disabilities might be relevantly different. And at least in the book, uh, Minority Body, she wants to sort of bracket all uh, other kinds of, of intellectual, cognitive, communicative, emotional disabilities to the side. Um, and and the, the heart of the distinction between mere difference and bad difference is whether or not we think that having a disability is intrinsically bad for the person that has it. This is the right, uh, disability as a bad sort of difference or disability as a mere sort of difference, which might be instrumentally bad for people in terms of how we construct our, our society. So Barnes thinks that physical disabilities are mere differences uh, rather than bad differences. So it's easy, I think, here to see how the medical model has often assumed a certain kind of bad difference view of disability. If what is bad is that the person's legs don't work in a way that allows them to walk, then right that that's inherently bad for the person. And so we should try to fix the person or to give them the kind of functioning that they don't otherwise have. Whereas if you think that um, being a paraplegic or, or being a wheelchair user is, is primarily exclusionary in terms of our social practices, right? It might not be that having that kind of bodily difference is bad in and of itself, but it might be bad for you if our society excludes you from certain important kinds of activities on the basis of, uh, of those facts about your body, right? So if you can't get into the courthouse to go vote, for instance, because there's not a ramp or a lift or an elevator or curb cutouts or something like that, right? There are certain kinds of communal goods, uh, goods about living together in, in, in our lives that you're excluded from, but you're excluded not on the basis of the physical disability itself, but the way in which we construct our communities. And, and so I think that a lot of the uh, kinds of literatures that have assumed a medical model of disability actually have something like Barnes's bad difference view of disability in mind, even though technically the two could come apart. And that a lot of the work uh, in favor of social models of disability has been working much uh, uh, more closely with a mere difference view of disability. So you, for instance, the neurodiversity movement, I think is an illustration of an attempt to show that uh, various kinds of, of autism or other neurodivergence uh, might just be mere differences and not inherently bad differences. Thank you for listening and join us next time to hear the droid version of Dr. Jeremy Pierce, our parable man, continue his conversation with Dr. Kevin Tempe about how philosophers can contribute to the understanding of disability. <laughs>